Three, two, one, go. This is Hot and Dry, a podcast about climate change in the Southwest. And about how it's... (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. How's your COVID test? (laughs) Not taking it. Um, Let me just get a sip of water. Let's start over. I'll start it over. Okay. Okay, thanks. This is Hot and Dry, a podcast about climate change in the Southwest. And about how it's changing the places we live and how it's changing our lives. I'm Paige Bono. And I'm Colin Haffey. And today we're sitting down with author and conservationist Bill Dubuis. We actually got to go to his house. Uh, we interviewed him in person, um, maybe in like the COVID intermission. I don't know what, what we're calling this, but it was awesome, wasn't it, Paige? You know, any sort of in-person encounters are so spectacular these days, but what made Bill's especially sweet was that, one, um, Bill has lived in on his ranch outside of Trampas for a long time, and the instructions that he sent Colin and I, you know, we're so used to getting just like a Google pin on a map or typing it in or planning at the very last minute to stare at our phones in order to arrive. And Bill sent us instead a Word document with really detailed instructions that definitely required being printed out and followed um, to the T. And it was nostalgic and lovely to arrive that way. Yeah. And the instructions, it wasn't just like turn right on this road. It was like turn right and go past, you know, the cemetery, which of course is the oldest, you know, it was like all this context and this little things. And, you know, it was the instructions to his house were written better than anything I've written in my whole life. And so (laughs) (laughs) that's fine. fine. They were like delightful to read, (laughs) which you can never say about instructions. Um, so yeah, it was really special and Bill was really generous, you know, inviting us, sharing his place with us and we got to circle up around a table and that felt good. Yeah. And you actually got to, to walk around, um, his property before we got out there. I did. I got to wander along the Rio and, uh, anchor, um, myself on the land in a lot of places that he talks about in his books. And speaking of books, Bill does have a new book coming out. Um, it's out, actually. It's called The Trail to Conjuroba, Rediscovering Earth in an Age of Loss. And I think we'll let you hear from Bill a little bit more about the book. But one of the things I'm really, two things I'm really excited about. One, I know Colin's also really excited about. But one is I think the form is really different. I think Bill played with sort of more like short prose poems in it. And they're um, just sort of... I don't know, I understand them as like shorter narrative sections offering insights into some really complicated questions. So I'm excited to go on that journey with Bill. Yeah, me too. He he actually called it the third in a trilogy with his other books, A Great Aridness and The Last Unicorn. And I read The Great Aridness and then I actually listened to the audiobook of The Last Unicorn which Bill narrates. And um, for those of you who, who like the audio books, like that audio form, highly recommend The Last Unicorn on audiobook. Bill narrates it. It is fantastic. It's an awesome story in itself. But then with Bill's narration, um, he's got such a nice, soothing voice that it made, you know, it really did bring the story to life in a different way. And so some audiobooks read by the author can be quite annoying, um, but this one is amazing. So if if you have 
access to audiobooks, I would highly recommend uh, The Last Unicorn in that format. And he's also narrating this new one, and I haven't decided yet whether or not I will do the audio or the print version. I think I'm leaning a little bit more towards the print version just because of the style. I think that that might, but, but you know, there's always an opportunity to do, to do both and uh, bounce in between. I was going to say it may be one that warrants both because the, to your point, Colin, the format of this one definitely lends itself to reading and partly because there's really beautiful illustrations throughout. So when we sat down with Bill, we had three goals. One was to kind of review his path of conservation and his experience with conservation, which has a lot you know, a lot of roots in northern New Mexico. The second, of course, was to talk to him about his books. And then the third was to really talk to him about how do we do this work um, of of conservation and especially collaborative, collective conservation. And he had some really great insights for us on the how-tos and some tips and tricks that I think you will find both smart and simple, which which often is is the best combination. With that, let's uh, let's get to that conversation with Bill. Bill, maybe just start with a quick introduction of yourself. Oh, my introduction of myself. Goodness, I have no idea. Name, <laughs> general <laughs> occupation. Well, uh, my name is Bill Debuise, and I'm a writer. Uh, formerly involved in conservation work a lot, including conservation real estate, getting land for parks and refuges and things of that sort and 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 then after that moving into more of more land management. But since two thousand eight I've been pretty much a full time writer. I was just gonna say and part time farmer. Part time farmer, yeah, yeah. I my farming is an exercise in the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy is occurring here. Things are falling down at roughly the rate I can prop them back up. And there's no gain either way. (laughs) Excellent. Sounds about right. So I think first, just can you tell us about this new book? And then I have some questions. Sure. So this new book, it's called The Trail to Kanjuroba, Rediscovering Earth in an Age of Loss. And it's really the third book of a trilogy, a trilogy that when I started writing it, I didn't know I was writing a trilogy. And if I had had the thought of doing so, I would have run away with my tail between my legs because the prospect of writing a trilogy would have scared me too much. But the first book was A Great Aridness, which is about climate change. And then I wrote a book called The Last Unicorn, which is really about extinction and the loss of biodiversity. And I kept struggling with the question of when we look at those facts of climate change and biodiversity loss, when we look at those facts squarely, how then do we continue doing the work that needs to be done? How do we not lose heart? And in an attempt to answer that question, I went on two medical expeditions in a very remote region of Nepal called Upper Dalpo. And I went with doctors and nurses and alternative health practitioners of various kinds uh, under the aegis of a a Buddhist, um, uh, Buddhist retreat in Santa Fe, the Upaya Zen Center. 
And I went on the trail with these folks, wondering if by observing the medical ethics that they put into practice, which were care over cure, warm hand to warm hand, strong back, soft front. These are all slogans that were part of our, our um, approach. We trying to help people to alleviate suffering in a place where we didn't have access to x-rays or scans or blood work, let alone surgeries. Um, how do you make things better under those straightened circumstances? And so I went to observe the doctors and nurses and other practitioners and to see if their ethics put in practice might lead me to understand a set of ethics and values that might be applied to earth care. And that might also help me not lose heart. And having gone out there with these questions in mind and later started on writing the book, I realized, oh my goodness, this is the third book of the trilogy. So that's a little bit of a sketch of how The Trail to Kanjiroba came about. It is a book that includes not just the story of the expedition. I actually went on two expeditions. I had to go on the second one in order to understand the first one, but that's another story. It's a story not just of the expedition, but it's also the story of some other journeys. One of them is Darwin's journey toward the theory of natural selection. And yet another is the journey of quite a few people toward the theory of plate tectonics. So why include that in a, in a book about a medical expedition in Nepal? Well, for this reason, we occupy an absolutely astonishing point in history. My generation which grew up in the 50s and 60s. It's the first generation to have the benefit of plate tectonic theory in their worldview. That great earth science theory of the 20th century perfectly complements the great science, scientific theory, biological theory of natural selection in the 19th century. Put those two things together and we are the first generations of people who can tell themselves the biography of Earth, the history of our planet, who we are, where we are, how all this stuff around us came to be. We can tell ourselves that story without resorting to magic. At the same time, we are approaching this near omniscience we are far along in destroying the creation of which we are a part. So that is the paradoxical historical moment from which this book begins. And for our podcast listeners who won't be able to see this, this is not that's based on those huge questions. It sounds like it could be like a, a 10 book tomb, you know, and this is a really small book. Like yeah. you've distilled those ideas down significantly. Yeah, and, and it has 61 episodes. I, they're too short to be called chapters. A really long one would be maybe four pages long. Most of them are shorter than that. I found that by working with short units, that was the way to braid those disparate stories together. The book, I think, is even with the indexes, less than 240 pages long. So it's not a big book. But it says everything. But it's a big book. It says everything I wanted to say. <laughs> it 
it's a little big, but... I'm curious how the experience of writing it, given sort of the arc that you outlined of sort of coming to terms with these really heart-wrenching truths, and then trying to find out how we maintain heart with that awareness. Like, how did the experience of writing this book differ? The experience of writing the book was another journey parallel to the physical one on the trail. And the journey of writing the book is how I made sense of what I experienced on the trail. I'll just say it was one of the great journeys of my life. And um, I actually did find answers to my questions. And they are embodied in the last 16 words of the book, which I probably can recite. Every day a yatra, a yatra is a pilgrimage. Every day a yatra, every situation a clinic. Absorb the beauty, build an ark, be alive. That's the teaching of the book. But to unpack those 16 words, to really make sense of them, you've got to go on the journey. And the journey is the book. You have to read the book. And then, by the time you get to the end, those 16 words will open up for you and share with you what I think I found. That's great. Um, and maybe just describe, we're actually doing an interview in person. Yes. But it would be nice if we could bring other people into this into this setting. So we're in your in your living room, but like, where is is the living room in relation to the rest of the world? Well, we are uh, in southernmost Tiles County. I can see the abstract county line out the window to the south here, and we are in the watershed of the Rio de las Rampas, the river of traps, which runs through. This village, El Valle and Las Trampas, a little bit downstream. And here we are at my little farm, which is the downstream most extremity of El Valle. So I've gone down the river as far as I can go. I'm always, I've always been curious just because that's where I got started was in the Jemez Mountains and working in Bandelier and Valles Caldera and stuff. And I wonder if there's a particular story about bringing those folks together that that stands out to you and bringing which folks do you have in me the board you know the the sort of melding of science and ranching and management and the new ex, the sort of new experiment for land management and um the sort of the early days of, yeah. of that project when we started the vice called era trust we didn't own a telephone uh, a spoon or a chair uh, so we started from absolutely nothing and we started just as the Clinton administration was scattering to the winds and the Bush administration, which wanted nothing to do with anyone associated with Clinton, was coming in. And so it was tough to get anything going. But another aspect of getting started was to try to build a common spirit among the members of the board, a sense of common mission. And so one of the first things we did was to organize um, a little retreat. We couldn't, when we started our work, we couldn't even get on the preserve because the place was snowbound. So our first meeting was really at Bandelier 
And we spent, I think, two or three days there as a group going over what was important to each of us about the Vias Caldera. And the output, output from that meeting was a statement of principles. And that's where we found, I don't know, nine or a dozen principles that we all agreed on. And we enumerated them, expressed them, negotiated the actual phrases and sentences. And that was a vitally important process for our little group, not just to have the product, but to learn to talk to each other and to learn to listen to each other. And we came out of that feeling like now we were a team and we could do some business. It didn't stay that way. Uh, one of the structural problems of the Vias Caldera Trust was the, the difficulty of renewing board positions and the difficulty of maintaining continuity as new people, new people came in. Uh, I think we'd have been able to do much, much more if when the for four or three members uh, their initial terms were just two years and if we could have had those terms renewed with the team we had from the beginning uh, we'd have accomplished much much more but we ran a foul of politics and some of those people were associated with the clinton administration so the the bush administration wouldn't renew them as though we should have our political fights about the Vias Caldera, our national political fights concentrated there instead of focusing on the doggone Caldera and what it needed. It was uh, quite an education in political stupidity, uh, to be honest. And working with White House personnel in those years was a nightmare. Hmm. Well, and it, so it resonates so much, I know, in the work we do, you know, sort of the dissonance of scales. So, you know, whether it's that we're working, it's whether it's the change in administration of objectives and priorities enough, you know, and our work on the ground having determined a certain vision and then all the partners suddenly can't go that direction because they yeah. don't have the support, you know, thinking about the Forest Service and the BLM and, and then also the fact that those relationships take so much time. And by the time you've built the trust, they leave. Yeah. And it's, it's a great challenge. So can we make progress on these things in the divided political world that we have right now? That is the $64,000 won't buy you very much uh, these days, but that, that is the $64,000 question. Um, we've just, it seems to me that as a society, we've just gotten pettier and pettier, often illusory uh, divisions, which are only about identity and not about facts on the ground, not about priorities on the ground, the work that needs to be done. These issues about identity, who I am versus who you are, throw us off the track again and again and again. Years ago, I thought that the three main motivators of human events were uh, money, power, and sex. I'm not sure in what order. But I don't believe that anymore. I think that identity is the, the primary motivator of human behavior. And uh, the more our identities become sort of siloed, which the internet 
helps us to do so much. We can create our own little information but bubble and just stay in that. The more that happens, the less we function effectively as a society. I guess what it's bringing up is two things. One is that, you know, identity is the story we tell ourselves about who we are, right? And sort of what we choose to absorb yeah. around it. And anymore, you can find whatever story. Yeah, and I think one of the weirdest phenomena of our time is the option to have multiple identities that so many people might have an identity at home or on the job and then other identities that they curate and cultivate on the internet. And these are identities that are not necessarily integrated with the other identities they have, but which can be just as strong and persuasive to them as the ones that where they eat and drink and sleep. This conversation is sort of taking the route of an arc that we're grappling with, which is, you know, the sort of template for telling stories around climate change seems to be in so much of the news, you know, bad, 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 bad news, but like slice of inspiration. Or like, you know, we've sort of, and I don't know if it's been true as you've told stories of climate change, but certainly it was sort of beat into me, like leave some note of optimism, right? We can't just be doom and gloom. But, you know, in listening to your interview on um, Mountain and Prairie, you talked about how in the great aridness, all that research, you know, was right. Their projections were accurate, except that it's all happened much faster than we anticipated. And I'm curious, you know, given the way you told that story, what you know now, like, would you have told it any differently? No, I don't think I'd have told it any differently at all. I might have told it, except that I might have told it with more anger. Because uh, as human beings, we are failing in our primary responsibility of stewardship to the planet and to all the other life forms that are here with us, whose future we are incinerating. I mean, people will say, oh, don't worry, there's always life on Earth and and things, you know, evolution will continue and so forth. That's absolutely true. Earth is not dying. The creation of which we are a part is dying in many of its features, in millions of its features. Um, And the people who say, don't worry, because in the long run, well... They're making, they're committing an an error of scale. Uh, they, I don't know if the people who speak that way even can imagine what three hundred thousand years looks like. But anatomically modern human beings have only been around for that long, and for a whole creation. You know, if we're going through the sixth great extinction right now, for a renewal to the this level or the our former level of diversity, again, we're talking about a whole lot more than 300,000 years. We're talking about another order of magnitude, at least. And more than that, several orders of magnitude. Amounts of time that are that we don't have the, the brain power, really, to think about very effectively. So 
we want to throw that error of scale glibness just right out the window. But as we contemplate these very difficult realities, we do want to maintain hope, but not a simple kind of hope. The trouble with talking about hope is that the word means different things to different people. And often, it, for many people, it just means, I want things to be back the way they used to be before these worries in my mind existed. And if you're hopeful, that's what you're hoping for. Well, that's kind of not going to happen. You know, the, the world that we inhabited before we threw all this fossil fuel uh, effluent into the air isn't going to come back around again. It just isn't. We're not going to achieve that planet Earth again. But there is always surprise in systems. You never can predict everything. The future is full of change. And hopeful people, in a sophisticated way, will hope for and prepare for beneficial surprise and prepare themselves to make the most use of it they can. Is there a feedback relationship between preparedness and hope? Feedback relationship. Interesting question. I have no frigging idea, Colin. <laughs> That's I mean, never occurred to me. When I, when I hear you talking, I hear you saying, you know, there's hope, in, but then there's also these, but then there's people who are working hard to prepare you know, for the eventuality, right? And that's and that to me is the difference between hope and optimism, mm-hmm. right? Is is optimists think, oh, it'll work, you know, it's just going to work out. I don't fine. need to do anything. La-di-da. But hope is like, eventually I will have the opportunity where it is my turn to run with the ball, right? And what am I doing in the meantime without the ball where, where, where I'm preparing for that? And then is that in, in, its, in and of itself... Is that making, is that giving me more hope? Is that giving Paige more hope? Is that inspiring the people around me? Well, the actions toward realizing the possibilities of hope, those actions are hope embodied. Those actions are hope in motion. Barbara Kingsolver, the wonderful novelist, uh, says she believes hope is a form of survival. Hope is a form of resistance. So yes, preparedness, I think, is a way of acting out the hope that you may carry in your heart in a meaningful, in a tangible way. Great question. Well, and I was curious, you know, specifically in New Mexico, and I love the phrase you used of, you know, preparing to be surprised by beneficial outcome. I can't recall exactly how you said it, but... Preparing for surprise Mm -hmm. in a way that makes allows you to make that surprise as beneficial as possible. Mm-hmm. How, how do we do that in northern New, Mex- in New Mexico? What does that look like? This was one of the conclusions that I reached in A Great Aridness when I was first getting that book ready for publication, is that how we approach climate change is not a little recipe of do this, do A, B, C, and D, and and then think about E when you get there. Most of the things that climate change would require of us are things we should have been doing all along, you know, talking to each other effectively, uh, building a sustainable water system, uh, 
treating our forests with uh, empirical understanding of their cycles and their needs and and their need not to be interfered with by us. All of those kinds of things. Once I attended a, a talk given by, uh, this was down in Las Cruces, a talk given by Bill McKibben, who is one of the great authorities on climate change in the United States, and also a marvelous human being. I mean, I think he's one of the great Americans alive today. After the talk, Bill took questions. A woman said to him, okay, you've convinced me. So climate change is happening. What should we do to prepare for climate change? And Bill said right away, live in a strong community. And then the woman asked the obvious follow-up question. How do we find a strong community? And Bill, again, shot back right away. You don't find it, you build it. And I think that's the heart of it. Wherever we are, whatever loyalty to place we have, we need to cultivate that. We need to build strength in, in our relations among the people around us in the community, whether it's Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Taos, or beautiful downtown El Valle. Uh, we need to build resilience in our relations, in our place, and we need to build resilience in our relations with the resources on which we depend and for which we are responsible for sharing them with all the rest of the life in the area that depends on them. We need to build strong communities, full stop. So we have been asking folks in this, um, this season of the podcast a couple questions. One of them is, where do you go to reconnect? This place right here is where I've always done my best work, my best writing, and every day I'm either working in the afternoon out on the farm or I'm walking in the forest that's around here. Other people have asked me, if you could live anywhere, where would you live? Well, I would live right here. You know, <laughs> well, I ain't, and I, I ain't going anywhere. You know, <laughs> This is the place for me. And then our other one is just, who are you know, the climate influencers? Who are the people working on climate in New Mexico that inspire you or who you kind of follow? Well, I think uh, the state's leading climate scientist is certainly Dave Gutzler down at uh, UNM. I have an immense regard for him. Uh, Colin, someone you know, Craig Allen, uh, has been studying the ecological effects of climate change in this part of the year, world for decades. And Craig is a great personal friend of mine. He's just recently retired from the U.S. Geological Survey. And so... Um, I depend on Craig uh, often when I'm trying to write something to, to help me get the science right. You know, Colin, thinking about the work um, that we're both engaged in, what were sort of the things that Bill said that, that you found most, you know, maybe surprising or validating or applicable. Yeah. To me, I think he reinforced this idea of working together and spending time together. I think that's really important. Um, I also think that 
what's still rattling around in my head is this is the conversation that we had about identity. Um, to me, that is really challenging, but I think there's an amazing opportunity there where we can create identity around conservation issues that are place-based that transcend some of the, you know, the, the cable news, sound clip, sound bite kind of things and actually get down to doing the hard work. It is almost page like what we have to do is find ways to create that identity. It's like creating the space for a new identity. Like instead of saying, come here with whatever sort of, you know, silo you've already either pegged yourself in or feel most comfortable in, like how do we create a space where those things can fall away and we can build a new identity around a shared purpose? Yeah, that really resonated too. And I, the other piece, and I think it's linked in it, especially, you know, you and Bill sort of engaged in a conversation about what is potentially a bit of a feedback loop. And it started because Bill talked about, you know, preparing for unexpected beneficial outcomes. And that in, you know, I think the question you posed was like, in doing that, are we sort of manifesting them? And I think creating that space for new identities is one of the ways that we prepare for those unexpected beneficial outcomes. And it's, it's sort of imagining a future where we're not at odds with each other and in doing so, um, creating the space for that to be true. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I think in my mind, positive outcomes are created and hope is the seed of those positive outcomes. And we can continue to, you know, nurture and germinate hope through um, the development of intermediate good things. And that feels really important right now. And it feels, I don't know, hopeful that we can create the future that we want by, you know, just sort of saying it and working towards it. And um, I think it'll come true. I think so, too. And I left I left that conversation. I guess I have to admit that in the middle, sort of the midst of the conversation with the belly didn't feel that way. I was feeling like pretty overwhelmed with I think what we're all overwhelmed with, which is the scale of what we're dealing with and just sort of the layering effect of a ton of compounding challenges that manifest as, you know, small changes in the availability of water in the creek running through his house. And then, you know, what we all recognize as these global challenges around biodiversity and social justice. And um, anyway, I I think in the middle of the conversation, I just felt like, man, it's too overwhelming, that really common feeling. And I wasn't sure we were going to sort of pivot out of that. And I feel like without even meaning to, Bill really sort of brought us back to that place of hope with some real tools for for keeping it alive. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't just, you can't just like sit at home and hope. <laughs> you have to, you know, you have to do the work. Mm-hmm. You have, like it's hard work. Mm-hmm. But, but I think it's important to know that we can do the thing, we can do big things still. We can do what we need to do. And those things build on each other and feed off of each other and so anyways get out there and and do the work (laughs) yeah and read read bill's book (laughs) and i think um yeah just a huge thanks to bill again for taking the time and kind of giving us a little bit of a new frame yeah and we will paste um some links into the show notes for the non-Amazon version of the books <laughs> that you can buy local bookstores, um, to support Paige's anti-Amazon 
uh local bookstores oh yeah that's right it's not anti-amazon it's pro local books mm-hmm. okay and find us you know don't forget to to stay in touch with us we would love to hear from you you can reach out to us on twitter at hot dry pod or gmail hot dry podcast at gmail.com right. it comes to my <laughs> cell phone which is cool <laughs> super advanced technology <laughs>